Good morning and welcome to our first uh, Sacred City Women's event. I hope that you all had a great time fellowshipping together with one another last night and you are ready for a great time studying God's word together this morning. Uh, we have got a lot of work to do. Hopefully you got your Bible. If not, I'm going to have most of the scriptures on the screen. There's Bibles under the chairs in front of you. Um, but before we get into our study this morning, I wanted to answer a few uh, probably pertinent questions first. One, what is, what is it we're going to be studying today? Uh, my goal for today is for you to have a solid understanding of what God says in his word about femininity. And that's a hard word to say that I'm going to have to say it a lot today probably. Uh, we are going to look at the scriptures and answer the questions, what is a woman? What is the essence of femininity? What is her telos? Now that te the word telos is a Greek word that means goal or aim. So if you, somebody has a, a bow and arrow, the telos is the target. Right? And probably even smaller than that, the bullseye. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's something you're going to be aiming at. It's a goal. It's an end or a purpose. And how does that tell us, that goal, inform her role in marriage, household, church, and wider society? And I hope for you to be surprised and inspired and empowered by the answers to those questions. Now, the second thing I need to address right away, or question I need to answer is, why am I, a man, teaching at a woman's event? Well, the culture tells us that only a woman can understand what it means to be a woman, and therefore only women have the right to speak to other women. Unfortunately, even the church has been infected with this lie, which is actually strange, when you think about it, our culture cannot even define what a woman is. And so it seems to me that if you can't define what a woman is, then you should have no opinion on the subject. So I didn't, now listen, I didn't speak to the men of our church a few months ago because I'm a man. I spoke to the men of our church about biblical masculinity because I am their pastor and I love them. The same is true today. I'm here teaching you the Bible because I am your pastor and I love you. Uh, God has called me to equip the saints by preaching and teaching the Bible, and I hope this doesn't sound proud or arrogant, but I'm the lead pastor here at Sacred City, and one of the reasons I'm the lead pastor is I am the most competent theologian and teacher of the scriptures. When I speak to the men, they get the best our church has to offer, and I want that to be true for you as well. I'm not here because I know what it feels like to be a woman. I'm not here. Thank the Lord for that. <laughs> I am not here because I have some personal opinions on womanhood and femininity that I want to share with you. I'm here to teach you the truth from the word of God because Jesus says in John chapter 8, 31 30 through 32, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So the truth sets us free in all areas of life. Whether it becomes masculinity for men or femininity for ladies, the truth is what sets us free. Everything else offers more lies, more captivity, more slavery. So please hear my heart for you this morning. I want you to be free. Free from confusion. Free from the cultural lies that keep you from enjoying who God made you to be. Free to live out your identity as a woman of God and to flourish in the roles that God has called you to walk in. 
Jesus said he came to give us life and life more abundantly. And just as a fish cannot, can only flourish in water, women can only truly flourish when they live in line with God's created order for them. Now, there's been more than one empathetic child who saw the fish in the bowl and thought, that's not fair. I want them to be free like me, right? I want, them to be, I want them to be free from the confines of that water. And what do they do? They scoop them out. They put them on the desktop. Oh, yes, they're finally free. And then they gasp and die on the table, right? Sometimes what looks like human freedom actually kills us. The last thing I would like to say before we get into our study is this. Uh, beware of what I'm going to call whataboutism. Whataboutism. See, I'm going to teach you about God's ideal, right? The purpose, the goal. When I, this is the goal when it comes to femininity. This is the purpose of femininity in a woman's domain. This is his standard that he calls all women to aspire to, to aim at. Since we live in a world that is not ideal, it has been affected and deeply marred by the fall and the presence of sin. And so there will always be circumstances that work against God's standard and make it seem like an impossibility for some. So when God, God's word speaks to men and tells them that they are to provide and protect for their families, what aboutism says, well, well, what about the man who's had a terrible accident and he's a paraplegic? What about him? Well, that's a circumstance where that man might be providentially hindered from being the provider of his family. That doesn't change the standard. That doesn't change the, the goal. That doesn't change the, the, the telos. And the Bible doesn't say that since he can't provide for his family anymore, he is in sin. However, seeing that ideal, if that man is able, he may go back to school and change his profession and be able to work with his mind and his words possibly and still provide for his family in some way. See, an ideal is something that orients our trajectory. It aims our life towards something that we should aspire to, and it isn't always just a pass or fail type of thing, right? It's something we're aiming. So you're going to hear some things today that will probably challenge you. Every single person in here, because no one is nailing the ideal. No one is just, like, I'm not going to have anybody stand up and say, this is the perfect feminine creature right here. <laughs> Do everything she does, right? No, we're all, we all fall short in many ways, just like the, we don't have any masculine ideal other than literally the person of Jesus Christ, right? So beware of whataboutism. And we're going to try with the panel to answer a lot of those whatabout questions that we've gotten ourselves into that, um, that aren't meeting God's ideal or meeting God's standards. So let me pray for us because I do have a lot of work to do. And uh, let's get started. Father God, we... Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Uh, we know we can study you and your works in two ways, by studying creation, the way that you revealed yourself through your creation, but also through your, your divine revealed God, uh, your word, Lord God, that you've specially revealed yourself to us through your word. And we want to study your word this morning. And I just ask that you would think through my mind, speak through my vocal cords, that your people would hear your words and not just mine, my opinions, and Father, I pray that you would reorient us where we, have, um, where we have strayed, where we have believed lies, where we have just made mistakes and sinned, and that you would help us live out this, the calling um, that you've called us to. 
Help us see this as a good thing. Help us see this as something that's freeing us. And uh, yeah, we just pray that you'd be glorified in, in all that I say and do and all that we hear this morning and that you would bring about greater flourishing in our church, in our homes, in wider society for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, now it's kind of obvious, but the first thing I need to do when I'm speaking at a woman's event is to define what a woman is. And I'm gonna do this kind of scientifically, maybe philosophically first, and then we're gonna go to scripture and see how scriptures, which were written thousands of years ago, actually backs up and affirms this scientific definition. So this definition I'm gonna be working with today is taken from the book, The Genesis of Gender, written by Dr. Abigail Favale. And just for some background on her, um, Abigail was a full-blooded feminist, this is her words, with advanced degrees in gender and women's studies, and she is currently a professor at Notre Dame University. Dr. Favale writes, quote, a woman is the type of human being whose body is organized around the potential to gestate new life. A woman is the type of human being whose body is organized around the potential to gestate new life. Now, I think this definition is vitally important. Most of us, we have some kind of, you know, definition that's ingrained in us that's just kind of reactionary. We know it has something to do with some things like that. But then whataboutism always comes in and says, well, what about this person? What about this? What about this? And then we kind of get really confused. Well, this definition helps us to avoid a lot of those whatabouts. Most of us can look and say, oh yeah, that's a woman. We, can, we know one when we see it, but defining one is actually kind of difficult because of all this whataboutism. What about women who've never had children? What about infertile women? What about postmenopausal women? What about women who've had vasectomies and, and hysterectomies? What about women who, with a Y chromosome? Did I say that? I said that. Yeah, I said that. I said that. Sorry about that. Yeah, I said that. Yeah, there you go. Dr. Favale defines a woman as a human being whose body is organized around, listen, the potential the potential to gestate new life. She says this, this potentiality that belongs to femaleness is always present. Even if there is some kind of condition, such as age or disease, that prevents that potential from being actualized. The very category of infertility does not undermine this definition, but actually affirms it. So, a male human who cannot get pregnant is not deemed infertile because he never had the potential in the first place. Infertility names the often painful and devastating inability to actualize one's procreative potential. So this definition that we have here isn't about function, it's about potential. Think about this. The structure of our bodies is arranged to produce either large sex cells or small sex cells. These sex cells are, are called gametes. Large gametes are ova and small gametes are sperm. A physiology arranged to produce ova is female and a physiology arranged to produce sperm is male. 
This is a universal truth that goes all the way down through the human species as well as through the animal species and plant species that reproduce sexually. All the way down. Universal truth. So from the smallest parts of your body, you are female. You are female all the way down. Your entire body is organized around the reality that you are the type of person who has the potential to gestate new life. Your sex cells, your hips, your breasts, your menstrual cycle, your womb, your hormones, your brain, even your bone size and muscle size. This is the one reality that makes you totally unique and distinct from being a man. I want to emphasize that. This is the one, we get caught up in all kinds of cultural things. Who does the dishes? It's like, well, we both can do the dishes. The one thing that, you, that only you can do is gestate new life or have the potential to gestate new life. A man can get breast implants. A man can remove his penis and try to create a poor image of your vagina. He can take female hormones. He can even call himself a woman and wear a dress. But he is not, nor will he ever be, a woman. His body is not organized around the potential to gestate new life. Listen, you can take a hood ornament of a Cadillac and put it on your Ford Taurus. <laughs> But that it does not turn it into a Cadillac. All right, so now let's look at the scriptures this morning and see if the scriptures affirm this definition of womanhood. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start in verses 26 through 28. When you're there, say there. All right. Then God said, let us... Who is us? That's the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our image. Man there is human beings, humankind. After our likeness. So God-like. The word there is imago Dei, or the Latin is the imago Dei, into our image. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps all the earth. So God created man in his own image, Imago Dei, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, what this means is that both male and female are equal in dignity, value, and worth. I need to say that right away. Equal in dignity, value, and worth. But they are not equal in terms of potential, functions, and roles. Right? We don't see Adam shaking his fist at God and saying, it's not fair, I should be able to have a baby. <laughs> right? He creates them specific ways, and he gives them specific roles. What we will see in the next chapter, they also share a mission together. Be fruitful and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. This is called the cultural mandate, right? So they're to make babies, they're to make children, they're to build a family, they're to go out into the world and 
God has given them all this potential out on the earth, and they're to go out there and realize this potential. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2. Now, what happens in Genesis chapter 2, God kind of gives the 30,000-foot view of creation in in Genesis chapter 1. He just says he, he created them in his image, right, together. But now he zooms in, and he shows them very specifically how he creates the man and how he creates the woman. And that's going to be helpful for us when we're defining what our roles are, what our functions are. Look at verse... Five, five through eight. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. Okay, no man to work the ground, right? That's a problem. There's no man. God created, created the earth, but there was no man to work it. We're going we're gonna to remember that, right? That's part of man's purpose. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of, formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Here we see man is created from the dust. He, now watch this. Verse 8, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Man was formed outside of the garden of the dirt, right, of the dust of the ground. That's going to be important. He was formed in the wild, let's say. And then he was placed in the garden. What was he put in the garden for? Look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it, right? To work it and keep it. That's why he's there. His job was to work the ground and to keep the garden. That means protect it, tend to it, husband it. Husbandry used to be the word we use for farmers and things like that, right? So man's telos... His purpose that his body was created around was to work, protect, and cultivate the garden. Why are men traditionally bigger and stronger, right? They have a different telos. Their telos, they're built to work. That's what they're there for. They're built to dig ditches and run and climb power lines, okay? That's what they're made for. But something is missing here. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, many preachers confuse this text. This is not saying Adam was lonely. Right? Doesn't say anything about Adam being lonely. The mission given to Adam was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Adam does not have that potential all by himself. Now, if God just wanted a kind of small, fruit, you know, well-manicured garden, Adam could probably do that all by himself. Adam could take care of the beans, right, in a small plot of land all by himself. It might take him a while to learn how to cook those beans, right, but uh, right, he could figure it out, right? But that's not what God wanted. God wanted human reproduction and for those human beings to reproduce and spread across the whole earth and create God-honoring civilizations all the way around the globe. So God put Adam in the garden and he wanted that garden environment to spread over the whole earth, 
right? And the only way that's going to happen is through multiplication, right? Creating families, creating households who multiply and spread across the earth. So what does God do? Look at verse 18. I will make him a helper fit for him, right? I'm going to make his almost opposite where he lacks I'm going to make someone else that can come alongside of him and do what he cannot do, that he does not have the potential to do. And he creates a helper for him. Now, I'm going to say it. I have to say this every single time. You know, there's movies out called The Help, right? And we're like, oh, that is not a derogatory term in any sense. God is called our help throughout the scripture, right? So that's not derogatory at all. So what does God do? God's going to create a female who is equal in dignity, value, and worth to Adam, but has different potential. The potential, listen, to take his seed and gestate new life. In this sense, Adam is the gardener and she is the new and better garden. Now, this type of language is picked up in Song of Solomon 4, verse 12. And he says, a garden lot is my bride. What does that mean? Her sexuality is locked to all others and opened only to him. And she is a fertile garden. Look at verse 19. Now, out of the ground... The Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Here he is exercising dominion over creation by naming them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now see here, that man was made from the dust outside the garden. His mission was to work it and keep it and to be fruitful and take dominion over the earth. But woman was created inside the garden from the man and for the man. She was to be oriented partially to her husband. She was to help him do what he could not do alone. And God himself brings her to the man. So as, think about it. As God took Adam out of the wild and put him in the garden, right? God takes, builds, builds Eve from the man and brings her to the man. Verse 23. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Go to chapter 3 now, verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Here's what I want you to see. God gave Adam a mission that was too big for him. 
He did not have the innate potential to fulfill God's purpose for his creation, so he needed a helper. He needed a woman, so God made him one. They got married, had sexual intercourse, she got pregnant, and they created what we would call a household. This is where Eve gets her name from. It means the mother of all living. Now listen, to be a woman, the essence of femininity is to be a life giver. Her name means mother of all living. That's what the essence of femininity is to be a life giver. Now, the next thing I want you to see is that Adam was created outside of the garden and his orientation was to be working outside of the home to provide and protect for his household. The woman was to be oriented towards her home as she gestates new life. Think about this. She literally becomes a home. That baby's first home in this world is literally inside of her. Every mother is a homemaker. Everyone, you made a home, right? For that child. She then feeds it and nourishes its life with her own body. This intimate gift is given only to women and obviously creates a special bond between mother and child. So I was studying this week. I came across a, a few quotes that I want to share with you. One of them was by George Washington, right? This is what George Washington said about his mother. Quote, my mother was the most beautiful woman I ever saw. All I am, I owe to my mother. I attribute all my success in life to the moral intellectual, and physical education I received from her, right? This is why when you see somebody win the gold medal, like as a parent, you just see that different these days. When you see a 20-year-old kid win the gold medal, you know that those parents made that happen with thousands of dollars, <laughs> a thousands of carpools back and forth, to practices, getting them in the clubs, getting them in this, right? And that's, thankfully, most people, when they win that gold medal, I want to thank my mom and dad, right? Yes, right. Being a mother is one of the most, it's, I'm just going to say, it is the most important thing that you will ever do. The next thing I want you to see is that the household is the foundation for the rest of society. Now listen, I'm purposely not using the word family here. Because as I will show later, the household is actually a larger concept than our modern idea of the nuclear family. See, when Adam... You know, when they got married and they had kids and their kids had kids, right, and, and on and on it goes, you're going to have three or four generations living in one area, right? They could be living under one roof. Often that's what happened. They had their home, and then when the, when the kids got married, they just built a little addition onto the house or just right around the corner, right, a little estate right around the corner. And so that means our relationships are going to be defined by more than just husband, wife, kids, 
We have this mentality in the United States that it's just the nuclear family. The idea of the family, biblical idea of the family is wider than that. It's the nuclear family plus household, okay? But here's the principle. As the household goes, so goes the rest of society. And this is important for us to get our mind around because we've been trained, we've been lied to. The best, as George Washington just told us, right? The most important thing that, happen, ha, that happens in society does not happen in the White House, does not happen, happen in the Congress. It's happening in homes, right? When I'm thinking of the positive and the negative there, like I'm thinking George Washington obviously had a God-fearing, loving mother. What kind of mom did Hitler have? Right? Like moms can influence continents, kingdoms. So as the home goes, the rest of society goes. That means if you have broken homes... Those broken homes go into schools, cause all kinds of problems in schools, fill up our prisons, right? Violence in the street, all kinds of things, on and on and on it goes. And the more broken homes you have, the bigger government you have because you need what it's been called a mommy state to provide things that a mother and father are supposed to provide to the household. Okay, so as a household goes, so goes the rest of society. Now listen to this. This is C.S. Lewis, a... This is the, the, a, a homemaker woman wrote to C.S. Lewis. She was exhausted. She was tired of wiping butts and doing dishes. And she was being told by the wider culture that you're wasting your potential. You're wasting your life. You should go out and do something in the workforce. You should go out there and do something else to provide, you know. And she was like, is this even worth it? And this is C.S. Lewis wrote, homemaker is the ultimate career. All other careers exist for one purpose only, to support the ultimate career. Lewis is getting at an important point that many of us don't know. Homemaking is irreplaceable because all other careers, policemen, firemen, grocery stores, serve to keep us safe and happy in our homes. That's their job. Here's the full quote written in a letter to that tired homemaker. I think I can understand that, that feeling about a housewife's work being like that of Sisyphus. If you know Sisyphus, he's the one that was trying to roll that giant stone up the hill every single day, just constantly, and it would you know, roll, roll back down, right? But it is, that's what it feels like to do laundry in my house, okay, by the way. <laughs> but it is surely, in reality, the most important work in the world. The most important work in the world. What do ships, railways, mines, cars, government, etc. exist for except that people may be fed, warmed, and safe in their homes? As Dr. Johnson said, to be happy at home is the end of all human endeavor. First to be happy, to prepare for being happy in our own real home hereafter. So the home and the happiness we experience in our home is meant to point us forward to our ultimate home, which is heaven which is the only perfect household, by the way, right? Second, in the meantime, to be happy in our houses. We wage war in order to have peace. We work in order to have leisure. We produce food in order to eat it. 
So your job is the one for which all others exist. Now, we have been told all of our lives through teachers and movies and music and TV shows that homemaking, or in the common vernacular, the stay-at-home mom is a sad choice for a career. To merely be a stay-at-home mom is to waste your potential. Now, how many times have you heard a female high school graduate say, when they interview, what are you going to do next year? Well, my goal is to prepare myself to start a family and stay at home with the kids. The cultural pressure is far too great for anyone to say that most of the time. No, our ladies have been catechized by the lies of feminism. You can do it all. You can have it all. You should pursue a career because that's where real meaning and identity is found. Go to college. Go into great amounts of debt. Get the degree. Become an astrophysicist. And then, if you can find a man that makes more money than you and is more, better educated than you, this is called hypergamy if you don't know that. All right, this is what typically we do. Ladies, sorry. Then, after all of that, you can get married and have a kid if you want one as long as your biological clock is still ticking. You cannot have it all. Your biology, know, you know you cannot have it all. Most men don't hit their stride in their careers until their 40s. So if that's what you're living for, the, your time for having babies is done. And then, they say, after you have the children, you can keep the job and send the kids to daycare. Now, these are just some of the lies of feminism. And as I said before, even the church has been infiltrated with these, these lies. Listen, one of the original goals of feminism was to abolish motherhood as a vocation. That was their stated goals. Why? Because they knew moms have too much influence over their kids. Moms, Christian moms, create George Washingtons. And they're tired of men like that. They knew if they were to change society, they had to make the vocation of motherhood shameful, embarrassing. Now, wave after wave of feminists have come through pushing their agenda New feminist author Shulamith Firestone says, the quote, the end goal of feminist revolution is, must be unlike that of the first feminist movement. Not just the elimination of male privilege, but of the sex distinction itself. Genital differences would no longer matter culturally. The tyranny of the biological family would be broken. Okay, feminist author saying the, the scary part out loud. That's the goal. And if you look at our society, is that what's happening? Right? The highest, according to scripture, and we're going to see, we're going to get into a lot more text. The highest calling in the world for a woman is to be a mother. It is the profession 
of creating, nurturing, and shaping souls that will live forever somewhere and also go out into the world and do something, behave some way, treat other human beings some way. This is why the Bible in Psalm 127 and 128 talks about our children being like arrows in our quiver. That an arrow is meant to be shot out into the world. And if you shoot out crooked arrows, they damage a lot of people. Now, just again to head off the whataboutism, every Christian woman can pursue the vocation of motherhood because women have a life-giving nature that transcends biological motherhood. Motherhood is at the core of every woman's identity. And it develops into a maternal Christian maturity that would be a blessing to others. Let me show you in a couple different places. Um, go to Romans 16, 13 with me. If you didn't pick up what I just said there, you can be a mother without having a baby. That's what I'm saying. Romans 16, 13. When you're there, say there. This is what Paul says, the apostle. It's just in his greetings at the end of the letter. And he says this in verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Now we get that statement, right? Who's been a mother to me as well. Now we don't know what that means. I bet it means she made the meals for him. I bet it means she was kind and encouraging like a mother is to a son. I bet that's what it means, right? Here's the idea. You can be a mother without having a baby. So when we get into all the what, what about isms, part of your feminine nature is to be a life giver. A key piece of it, all right? Just like a mom is to that baby, you can do those similar things to other people, even preachers. I'm thankful for the home-cooked meals that I've received in difficult seasons of my life and ministry, right? That's part of your calling as a woman. Also, as we saw in Genesis, the household is wider than the nuclear family. And this is really important when it comes to understanding femininity. Listen, the evangelical church, because there's their focus on the, on the small you know, target of the nuclear family, has often reduced femininity to one relationship, that between a husband and a wife. So the only thing you ever hear about being a woman is women submit to your husbands. That is true. That is how you relate there. But you are feminine in every relation you have, every relationship that you have. And if your feminine, femininity is about life-giving, of course you, re, you can receive your husband's seed and create a baby if the Lord gives life, and you can be a life-giver there. But then as that child grows up, you're, you're in a different relationship to your daughters and sons. You don't submit to them. They submit to you, right? They respect you. They honor you. With your sisters, you're in a different relationship with them. Think about this wider household. Often your mom is still living in the household, right? Or ne right next door. 
You don't submit to your mom. You honor your mom in the Lord, right? But she, she's not, it's not a, you're not, like the hierarchy is not mom up here, husband up here, you're down here, right? No, you, you're relating to her as your mother still, but you have your own realm of authority and responsibility in the home. So you think about this. Most households, a daughter becomes a wife who then becomes a mother. But then in a household, she remains a daughter. She remains a sister. She remains an aunt, etc. So being a woman is about far more than just being a wife and submitting to your husband. You are to be a life giver and household builder that means someone who works for the upbuilding and flourishing of those first and foremost in your household. Think about this. What, is it, what does it mean or what does it look like for a woman to be a mother or a life giver to her own mom? To honor her, of course. But how can a daughter bring life to her mom. Well, one, make her a grandma. That's the first thing she's going to say. <laughs> right? <Amen>. Two, <laughs> continue to learn how to be a God-honoring and lovely daughter or daughter-in-law. Contribute to family meals. Right? This is one of the things that that my family started doing a couple years ago is my mom, you know, all of her kids moved out and my mom, her spirit, one of her spiritual gifts is literally cooking. Okay, everybody knows that, right? Everybody knows that. Well, I just didn't want my dad to be 400 pounds, right? <laughs> so everybody's out. So we said, what can we do? Well, obviously let's, we, what we did, let's create a Sabbath dinner. So every Saturday night, we go back over there and my mom cooks the big feast, right? And we bring all of our kids. My sister brings her kids, right? My other brothers are living out of town and we've got this household idea. It's bigger than just a nuclear family and we, are, we can contribute. We can, if, if she lets us, right? We can bring a dessert. That's usually what, usually what we do. But... Think about that. That's one way to honor a mother, but also to express and practice your femininity, right, in relation to a mom. So you can do this for every single relationship. Your femininity needs to be expressed as a life giver, as someone who's bringing flourishing to the households. Also, the flourishing of the relationships. Uh, you know what I do at family dinners most of the time? I walk in, what's for dinner? Oh, it smells great. I sit down, I eat, we pray, you know, we pray, we sing, and then I eat, and then we talk for a little bit, then I'm out. What, what my wife does when, when I'm there is she's checking out relationships. Did you see that your mom was acting weird? Did you see that your sister was doing this? Did you see that whoever was doing this? Did you see that who? The stakes were great, <laughs> right? This is her femininity 
like her, she's relationally oriented, right? And now she's telling me this because it's my job, right? It's my job as a son to relate in a masculine way. And so that's gonna lead me to have conversations with people. That's gonna lead me to have different things. Like I'm gonna lead out in these, in the, in these areas, but I wouldn't know anything about it if my wife wasn't doing feminine things in this type of environment. Now we can do the same thing for sisters and aunts and grandmas all the way down the line. Christian women are to be life givers, living in relationships with multiple generations, bringing glory to each other's homes. Now it's interesting because then in the New Testament, Paul tells us in Galatians, quote, chapter six, verses nine and 10, and let us not grow weary of doing good. When you're in relationship with people, it's very easy to grow weary in doing good. Cleaning, keeping checks on all the relationships, right? Making dinners for people, all the, the things that it takes, doing good. Listen, let us not grow weary in doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we offer opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The household of faith. See, the church is a new household. It doesn't completely replace your biological household, but sometimes it does. Many people know if you come from a different religious background, if you come from Islam, to convert to Christianity is to get a whole new family. You're being cut off by your family. I know with a, with a group this big, you've got people that have abandoned you. You've got people that have cut you off for becoming Christians. And the church is meant to be a new family, a new household where we relate together still in feminine ways for the ladies, but it's, a new, it's meant to be a new family for us. We become, as we become Christians, we become brothers and sisters, spiritual fathers and mothers with one another. Paul tells this to Titus in chapter one or two, verses one through five. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So preach the word. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Masculine. Older women, that's nobody in here I know, but older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Who are they to teach? And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Listen to this, hear that. Train the young women to love their husbands and young children. How do you train affections? How do you train feelings? Okay, we're not talking about feelings. We know you love your husband. We know you love your kids. What matters is the form that love takes. It can be a smothering love that can kill someone. 
It can be a harsh love that kills someone, that repels someone. Training means acting loving, doing loving things towards, behaving this way towards your husband and towards your children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home. (gasps) Is there a Bible verse for that? There's a Bible verse. Working at home. Kind and submissive to their own husbands. See all the relational dynamics before you get to and submissive to their own husbands. Listen to this. Why? That the word of God may not be reviled. Your femininity expressed biblically brings honor to the word of God. This is how he made you. This is how he made the world. Not just your submission, yes, your submission, but your kindness, your unwillingness to slander other people, to get drunk, to teach younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home. Now, of course, there's always a question about this, and so we're going to go there to see what does this actually look like working at home. Now, this is one of the reasons we're so confused about working at home. It was never a confusion before. Why? The man had to go out there and provide and protect, and he needed clothes, and the children needed clothes, and they needed fed. And so it took all he had, all he had in him to go out there and get the stuff and then bring it home. And then mom had to turn that stuff into clothes and soap. And wa- it took more than just pushing a button on a washing machine, right? It's hours of cleaning those clothes. But obviously with industrialization, now industrialization affected the home in a great way. Most of the time, Men worked in the fields. Women worked in the home helping around. And then they would eat together. Men were involved. The boys would be sent out to work with dad, right? And be put to work on the farm or in the blacksmith shop or whatever it was. But when industrialization happened, the men got pulled out of the home into the factories. And one of the first industries that got affected by industrialization was sewing. Something every woman used to know how to do. They had a loom in their house where she's making clothes. And now everybody's like, this is a great idea. I don't have to. But then eventually with industrialization and we've got dishwashers and we've got, you know, laundry, you know, laundry machines and we've got all this kind of stuff and we can go to the grocery store and get all, we can know, we can go click, 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 click. Groceries just magically arrive at our front door. <laughs> then we're like, well, what does a woman do at home? Right? And there was a season where, you know, that Stepford wife type of, well, what do we do? We just watch soap operas, right? And we look cute for our husbands. Well, that's not the biblical idea of working at home. Go to Proverbs chapter 31.
So this is the words of King Lemuel to his son, an oracle that his mother taught him, he says, or King Lemuel's writing this, I'm sorry, and this is an oracle that his mother taught him. Verse 10, an excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her. Okay, I want you to hear this. This idea of submission as being like misogynistic or, you know, angry or controlling or manipulative or harsh or domineering, that is not biblical at all. That is sinful. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She is... Right? She, she, is, she helps him become more productive, literally, by producing children, but also just in his life and ministry and mission and calling. I'm going to hear that again. Remember, submission, sub, come under someone else's mission. God gave Adam the mission. The wife was, come, was to come alongside. It's those who are single in here, do not date any man who does not have a mission who does not understand his biblical mission. Many times, ladies have a mission. They pick a guy. He's good for the moment. Then they get frustrated because he's not on the mission that they want right now. Keep moving. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. That, that means uh, she goes to Plato's closet and <laughs> finds good deals and stuff and brings the, brings the stuff home. All right. She is, like, she is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. That's DoorDash or whatever right there. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe not. Instacart, Instacart. There we go. Oh, but I'm about to get you. I'm about to get you right here, though. She rises while it is yet night. Oh. Oh. This question right, this answer right here, or this, this right here answers 90% of your questions on how do I find the time to study my Bible? She rises while it is yet night. That means she gets up before the sun does. Why? Right? Because she knows that's the only time she's going to have freedom is in the morning when little kids aren't pulling on her and the demands of the day aren't going, right? She rises. We have maybe. That's true. Maybe. Sometimes the babies rise at night too. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. Now, this is what I want you to see. The Proverbs 31 woman is focused on her home and household. She's oriented as a life giver to her home and household. It's priority one. Not just her relationship with her husband, the whole household. Now look at verse 16. She considers a field and buys it. She considers a field and buys it. What does that mean? That means she's shopping for real estate while she's got time at home. Okay? She's oriented to the home, but that doesn't mean she can't go outside of the home and work. 
as long as the outside work serves the purpose of her home and doesn't take away. Now listen, here's the reality. Everything is a trade-off. The more time you spend outside of the home, the less time you spend inside of the home. That means the less influence you have on your children. This is what the government wants. They want, I'm just going to say it, they want liberal progressives to have more influence on your children. So they want them in the play, at daycare. That's where they want them, where they start getting up all kind of crazy ideas of their own gender, sexuality, and what equality looks like, and all these different things. They want, they want their hands on your children. So we have to just understand this. I was talking to a woman one time, and she was a career woman, and she was being pulled. She felt like this. She went, got, she was a chiropractor. She got hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. Now she was like, oops, I think, I don't know if I want to stay at home. And we were talking about this mentality, and she said, and she just, she was thinking in that, you know, black and white thinking. She said, you're saying I'm a bad mom. I said, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you're a bad mom. But are you a better mom to your child than the daycare worker. Okay, then I'm saying you can be a better mom if you spend more time with your children, right? I'm also gonna push back on something because I feel it. I've had women say to me, I'm not built to stay at home with my children. That's a lie. Now listen, let's just flip the script. I've had many men say, I'm not built for monogamy. What do I say to them? Yes, you are. Right? We don't feel, sometimes our feelings don't line up. And it, just because something is really difficult doesn't mean it's not the best thing. Doesn't mean that's what you're aimed, that you should be aiming at, right? She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She, she joins a CrossFit gym right here. It's right here. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. This is not a weak woman. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. She's got an Etsy shop. Her lamp does not go out at night. Oh, burns the candle at both ends. Mm-hmm. She puts her hands to the distaff and her, her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor. So she's on mission. It's not just about her household. It, it expands out to the mission of God. She even is on mission to a certain per people in place in the, in the city, right? Like we are in missional communities. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed. See, the household, all her household are clothed in scarlet. She's providing, she's taking the, the resources that the husband gives her, and she's clothing everybody in decent threads. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. All right, what does that mean? That means she does not look like a sack of potatoes. This is important, ladies. How you look does matter. How you...
take care of yourself does matter. Now, I say the same thing to the men, so don't, I know, don't, nobody's got tomatoes or anything, I hope. So, strength and dignity are her clothing. And she laughs at the time to come. Okay, what this means here is she does not spend every dollar her husband makes. They have enough prepared. They have enough saved that she can feel comfortable looking at the future. She opens her mouth with wisdom. And the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Now, this is what's wrong with the Stepford wife understanding or even what's now it's called the trad wife. There's a trad wife movement out there. Oh, if you don't know about this, it's big on the internet, okay? But it's basically returning back to the Stepford. It's just being an idle woman at home. And they're even, they're even stay-at-home girlfriends now, if you didn't know about this. Okay, stay-at-home girlfriends. Right? All that matters is I look good and I just fiddle away and just run to Starbucks and just do nothing all day. I'm idle. Idleness. Listen, idleness is the opposite of productivity or productive. The goal of our homes and our households is to be productive homes. Adding to the goodness of society. Producing good things. Humans, of course, but also good stuff. Her children rise up and call her blessed, happy, joyful. Her husband also, he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her at the gates. See, this is a life giver. She's focused on building up her household. Now listen, again, ideal, goal, telos, right? Great example. This isn't meant to be a legalistic kind of, oh, I suck at this, you know? That's not what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a goal. Now I want you to go to... Actually, maybe I'll just put it up on the screen. I'm running out of time. Proverbs 14, 1. If you know anything about Proverbs, Proverbs constantly contrasts wisdom or the wise and the fool. Proverbs 14, 1 says this. Look, the wisest of women builds her house. But folly, that's a different person, the foolish woman, with her own hands, tears it down. Now listen, you, as most of you know, I've, I've built plenty of houses. There's only a lot of, I mean, I could just say it like this. There's only one right way to build a home in some ways, right? I can't use sand for a foundation, right? There's only one right, but you can tear that home down in a million different ways, right? So to build is, to, is hard and you have to follow certain guidelines and principles, to tear down is really easy and you don't need any guidance. You just start ripping. 
And the Proverbs, so talks about a lot of different ways that we can tear down our homes, we can destroy our homes. Obviously, Proverbs 31 gives us a pretty good picture of the flourishing home, the flourishing one, right? How do we tear that? How, how, do, how does the fool tear down their home? Here's one. Uh, this, is, this is repeated several times, so I'm going to go ahead and just read them to you. There will, I think they will be on the screen. A wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. We just had ice build up on the, on the, on the roof here and then snow and rain starts melting and everything and then it comes in and starts leaking in the building, right? Listen, that little drip, if left unaddressed, would ruin the whole building. Eventually it gets to the foundation, moves the foundation, the whole house comes down. What's a little drip? It can be everything, actually. Proverbs says this multiple times. It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. It is better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Proverbs 27, 15 through 16. A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's right hand. What exactly does a quarrelsome wife do? She nags. She nags again. She huffs and sighs. She challenges her husband's authority. She makes him feel incompetent. She grumbles when he desires sex. She reminds him of past failures. She degrades him verbally. She says things like, why don't you do like so-and-so does? You never... I've told you over and over... I can't stand how you fill in the blank. Listen, I began the men's talk by telling the men that I wanted Sacred City to be the most masculine church in the Quad Cities. One of the reasons I want it to be the most masculine church in the Quad Cities is because, one, I believe God's called us to, but also it's where men are most masculine, where ladies can be most feminine. Proverbs 1.27 talks about the man builds the house and the woman is like a vine or a vine in the home that clings to the walls of the house. The man is to provide structure and support, provide and protect, and she's to come into that home and flourish inside it. So I want our men to be better men. I want them to be better too, and we're working on it. I want to be better myself. I want our men to be strong and biblical and loving and good providers and good protectors. I want us to fight the battles, both theological as well as cultural, that we need to fight. And I want to create the environment where you can come in and be so good at the relationships and you can bring the life to the thing. But the men will not get better 
through constant criticism or quarreling. It doesn't work. So, if you all have been tearing down your home, you can do it with your kids. You can do it with your husband. Tearing down your home with your words. The power of life and death is in the tongue. The first step, but he is not a good enough man. The first step is for you to be a better woman. Repent. Confess it. Pray for him. I want to end in 1 Peter 3. Say there. We're getting there. This one is not going to be on the screen, sorry. So it was a late edition. 1 Peter 3. So we're going to get a, we've got a ton of questions on how do I relate either to an unbelieving spouse or a, a man who's not leading well, a man who's not doing his duties well. And again, if you have that situation, we're not dealing with God's ideal. It's going to be more difficult. But God does give us some very specific instruction on it. Look at verse th- 1. 1 Peter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject or submit to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word, by the conduct of their wives. Listen, I, and I, I'm not, no one has ever been nagged into the kingdom. No one has ever been criticized into the kingdom. Without a word, your conduct. Verse two, when they see your respectful, but he doesn't obey the word, he's not worthy of respect. I tell the men, they are to love you even when you're being unlovely. You are to respect and honor your husband even when he's being unrespectable and dishonorable. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. You hear that? If you do good and you do not fear. I know anytime someone uses the, 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 the S word, right? Submit. Immediately we fear. That's why we use, if we get down to it, that's why we're criticizing. That's why we're quarreling. We're afraid. We're afraid of where things are going. We're afraid what our marriage looks like. We're afraid for our kids. And that fear causes us 
to use our mouth to tear things down rather than build things up. And we learn here in 1 Peter that it's our conduct, it's our inner character, our dignity, as they said in Proverbs 31, our faith in God that can bring about the salvation of our own husbands. When we do even what we're afraid of doing, we do it because God's called us to do it. So this morning, we're gonna, I've gotta get off stage because we got ladies to do this thing up here. So let me pray for us before I do. Father God, I thank you for these ladies. I pray that your word does what it promises to do and it's not return void. I pray that you give them a bigger picture of the household, a bigger calling as a woman of God. And Father, they begin to orient their life in that direction. None of us are there, but we begin to point our life into that direction and that you would help us create those productive households for your kingdom where we raise souls that will go out into the world and eventually end up somewhere in eternity. Father, would you help us shape Christians? Would you do this for your glory and our joy? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.